We are, uh, we're in a series on the book of Hebrews, and today we're taking a break. Today we're going to stop. We wanna, I want to talk about uh, a little bit about communion. I think this is one of those things that we need to remember. Every so often the Bible talks about remembering so much. It's such an important theme, and it's what this table is based on, this idea of remembering. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 26 where uh, we see Jesus' last hours right after the Last Supper. And, uh, and I, I love, we sang about it. You know, this all kind of comes in together. Um, so we're going to be looking at, at Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Then he came back and again he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. In Jesus' life, from the very beginning, it's a, it, it, there, some people describe it as like almost like a series of tests, a series of temptations. He was, he was taken out into the desert, and, and, uh, and he, he, was, he was tested, he was tempted. And that reflects back on Old Testament uh, issues that, that were failures, and then Jesus comes and completes it. And so he's doing that, and we're coming, I called it the final test. I don't know if that's exactly right, but, but this is an incredible uh, scripture here that we just read. In in Christianity, in being a follower of Jesus Christ and allowing him to have control of your life, one of the things that comes up all the time is we struggle with this concept that Jesus was a man and he was God. It's called, theologians call it the hypostatic union. But it's that whole thing of how did that play out? You know, how much consciousness was there of one or the other and how... But here, what we're going to see is we're going to see Jesus the man. And I love this because it shows him fully uh, in that sense. He's going for an intense meeting with his father in prayer. He takes three disciples along with him uh, because he has this deep need of companionship. He says, I want you. Watch with me. Pray with me. He didn't want to go alone. And then something happens. that begs an explanation because Luke says he began to be in agony. Mark and Matthew don't use the word agony, but they use these Greek words that are synonyms for agony that are incredibly powerful, all right? This is, this is not, you know, go to the hospital and what's your pain scale, one to 10? Oh, this is an eight. This is, no, this is way beyond, this is way beyond that. And to understand that agony will help us understand this text, but also it helps us understand why Jesus died and how it will help us to live for him. All right, so, so what is this 
agony. In verse 37, he says, he took Peter and, this, and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. I mean, those English words just don't, don't do the Greek justice, but he's sorrowful and troubled. He said, my soul, but this does, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I feel like I'm dying. Stay here and keep watch with me. We know in one passage it says that blood was, he was sweating, blood and sweat came out. And, and um, I know, read a few doctors, things by, written by doctors where they talk about how in cases of extreme shock, sometimes blood vessels break in the skin area and, and come out with the, with the sweat. And so this is an incredibly powerful moment. But here, it means... There's something going on here. He began to be sorrowful. And the, and the Greek, he began, means it came on him powerfully in a moment. It comes down upon him. And uh, Mark uses a word that he's astonished. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I'm being crushed by this. I feel like this is killing me. So here's Jesus he's, he, he's, he's facing. He knows what's coming. He's facing this torture. He's facing this death. But he's, he's, he's almost in a state of shock. I say almost because it's hard for me to imagine that God could be in a state of shock, but that's what it's kind of telling us. He's in a state of shock. He's trembling. He's reeling. He's sweating. Why? Because he knew. Did you ever think about that? He knew he was going to die. He's talked about it a whole bunch. So what's going on here? Constantly in his life, he mentioned, you know, I'm going to die. He mentioned that. So there's something, he knew this was coming, but somehow in this moment, it leveled him. And I think this is the writers of, uh, of the Gospels as with Mark and, and Luke and here in Matthew. They are trying to give us a glimpse into how much this just absolutely has devastated Jesus. It devastated him to this point. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Imagine that. Imagine that. Jesus is saying, I don't want to do this. Is there any other way? And Scripture tells us he said it three times. He, three times he repeated, is there another way? Now think about that. That is a person who is struggling in, in an incredible way with something he knows has to happen. You know, in ancient cultures, not just Israel, a cup often meant a suffering. It meant an, it meant an ordeal. In the Old, Old Testament, the cup meant God's divine wrath on all wrongdoing, God's punishment and justice coming down on all wrongdoing. In Ezekiel 23, God talks about his cup uh, of, of, of wrath. It's, he calls it the cup of ruin and desolation. And he says, and when you drink it, you will tear your flesh. In, in Isaiah 51, it talks about this cup of God's fury over sin. And it says, when you drink it, you will stagger. You will be staggered. You will lose control of yourself, it says. So this whole idea, you know, and this is pretty graphic, tearing at your flesh, staggering. It's, it's a metaphor for something. You, you, have, you have drank something that is a fiery poison, and it is killing you. And no one has faced this cup. No one has faced this kind of wrath. Because this cup is God's infinite divine wrath for sin. 
and it's about to come down on Jesus. And it would be perfectly normal, and I've had people ask me this, but he knew it was coming. Well, think of it this way. The Bible emphasizes that the worst punishment that could happen to a person is to be excluded from the presence of God. In, in uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, he talks about punishing them by excluding them from his presence. Now, why is that punishment? Because we're made for the presence of God. From Genesis all the way through, to live, we're made to live in God's presence, to love him, to know him. We need God's presence like a plant needs the sun. You take away the sun and the plant slowly dies. And, and, and what does sin do? This is, this is what makes sin so wrong. Sin makes every one of us to basically kind of feel like we could be happier if we were free to live any way we wanted to. I would be happier if I didn't have God breathing down my neck and looking over my shoulder. And so sin convinces the mind that we would be happier away from God. But ultimately, ultimately, the reality is we need to be with God. We need God desperately, and we need his presence in our lives. And therefore, the ultimate, pre the ultimate punishment of God is to say, get out of my presence, to be separated from him, to be separated from him. And Jesus is beginning to feel this. And this is why it's a shock. Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Jesus, more than any person in the history of the world, he knew absolute, unbroken, face-to-face -face fellowship with the Father, intimate connection. He knew the glory of God. He knew the love. And when he walked into that garden and began to pray, he was shocked. Why? because he sees the coming separation from the Father. And we, get, we see that, right? We know that. It's Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think of that. That's what Jesus cried out to the Father. I read a guy, he was saying, the agony caused by that vivid, bright view of the wrath of God. God the Father put the cup down in front of him and said, this is what you'll drink. And Jesus is staggering. He's tearing. He's had fellowship with the Father throughout eternity, and he senses it coming to an end. He senses the loss of it, the wrath of God. It's agony, and it's tearing him apart. You notice, he's not surprised that he's going to die physically. He's not even mentioning that. He's talking about the cup. Three times he mentions it. That's what the focus is. The focus is not being on the cross is going to be horrible. The focus is not the beating is going to be horrible. The focus is on the cup. He's, he's, he's facing an experience of hell. And here's the thing that we have to stop and think about for a moment. Do we understand, do we see what he's doing here and who he's doing it for? He's doing it for us. We understand the great hatred God has for sin. And when we begin to glimpse that and see what it does, we begin to appreciate the great love that he has for us to die for our sin. I mean, how do you know? How do you know when someone loves you? When things are going good? 
No. The one who loves you is the one who sticks with you when things are going horribly. That's why so many times, I mean, it's just, it's just true, dark times, hard times can really take a toll on a marriage, oftentimes make or break a marriage. Costly love is the best love. And God gives him a view, not of the physical pain so much, but a picture of the spiritual agony that's coming that he is beginning to experience. And as a human being, what that will be like. This is the last test of his life. And so he says, verse 42, I mean, I missed this. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. May your will be done. Then he came back. Again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. This, this is Jesus. He is going to radically volunteer his life. He is going to take up that cup. Knowing, and this is the thing, I believe God is showing him, here is the absolute horror of what's going to happen. Are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? And so here we see the wonderful love he has for us. He's on a precipice looking down, and he says, I will step off. And also we see his incredible obedience to the Father. And let's think about this even a little deeper. The sum of the law, Jesus said, is love, your, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And he shows his love for God here. Centuries before, God said to Adam in the garden, don't eat from this tree. Just obey me in this one thing and you will live and I will be with you. And he didn't. And now the second Adam, Jesus, God takes him to another garden. And he says, now obey me about this tree, this cross. And you will die. You will be crushed. I will abandon you. And he obeyed. No one has ever loved and obeyed God like that. No one has ever loved their neighbor like that. Look at his disciples. This is, this is where it gets me because, you know, it's, it's very easy at times when we talk about the disciples to be a little bit critical. But I realize so many times they're just like me. I'm just like them. And so here's his disciples. He brings these three guys. He basically is saying, please, please, please be with me through this. This is a great test, and I need you now more than I ever have in my life. Please be there for me. And they keep falling asleep. Three times. They represent us, and they fail him. I mean, they're just a picture of us. But the timing of this is so amazing. God is saying to Jesus, here's the cup you have to drink. Jesus is, in a sense, staring into the open mouth of hell itself. And these are the people. Think about that. Jesus is just wrecked. And those are the guys you're doing it for, Jesus, right there. Those three sleepers. They're the ones you're doing it for. Those are the ones he's going, I'm going to die for them. They can't even. Stay awake with me in my hour of greatest need. And God's saying, those are the ones. This is the great test. This is the great test. Do you love them enough to do this? Either you perish or they perish. You see how this test is so much harder? He can see the failures of the people he's dying for right in front of his face. It's not some far off thing. Jesus could have said, 
why should I, an amazing and holy being, subject myself to ultimate torture and death for people who can never pay me back? In fact, why should I drink the cup of God's divine wrath for people who can't even be awake for me? But he loved us. No one has ever loved like this. This is costly love. Costly love is the best love. And this is costly love. And we are called upon in Scripture to become more like Jesus. But if you're just trying to be like Jesus through willpower, it'll never work. You know, Jesus is a great example, but examples don't work unless our heart is changed. I can give you so many illustrations of how examples don't work. You know, every, every corporation, when they have big events, they hire a speaker. He's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, you know, some sort of a motivational speaker or somebody who's got an incredible story. And the stories are incredible, and sometimes the people are incredible. But I was talking to somebody who went to one, and they were saying, yeah, it was this guy, and he, this happened to him, and this happened to him, and he lived, and it was just this incredible story. And I said, man, that's awesome. I mean, what, what do you feel coming away from that? Uh, it was an incredible story, but I could never do that. It's just a cool story. Okay, Jesus is not just a cool story. He's saying, I'm going to make you like me. I'm going to change you in this process to become more and more like me with this ultimate culmination at the end of time when you will be like me. You will be, heart will be changed. And that's what we need. We need our heart changed. So how does that happen? In terms of this whole situation, what we're celebrating with it, well, how does that happen? Well, I think this is it. When we begin, and this is just a part of it, and it is a process, but when we begin to see clearly what Jesus did for us, when we begin to see clearly his, his righteousness and yet his love for us, and we begin to rely on that, and that becomes personalized, and I begin to understand it, my heart changes. In this text, in Matthew, we see this incredible beauty and righteousness of Jesus. If his righteousness could be seen to be blinding like the sun, and God says, I've given you that righteousness. When we begin to grasp that, it is life-changing because we're all struggling to feel good about ourselves. We, we do it in various ways. We, 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 how we look in our career, how we look to our family, uh, we try to make money, we try to lose weight, we try to get, try to get someone who is good-looking to like us, right? And that's... The problem, we'll always be insecure and unhappy because those things never quite do it. And this is what you need. It's hard to grasp, but it is true. When the only person that really matters is God, and when he looks at you and he says he sees beauty, he sees blinding righteousness when he looks at you. Now, I know, I know, if you're like me, you go, this righteousness is not blinding. I'll tell you right now, nobody's even wearing sunglasses in here, right? It's not, it's not even bright, right? And he says, no, it's true. Trust me, I've granted you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now just go live in it. See, this is what we need. Because when you begin to rely on that, when you begin to understand that, when you begin to see that 
somehow, when God sees you, when God sees me, he sees Jesus, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, that begins to bring change about from the inside out, the only change that really works and really lasts. Why? Because you will be able, you'll start to find out you'll be able to forgive people because you have so much emotional wealth. You'll be able to pray and find contentment because you have the assurance of how much he regards you and loves you. You will see that those times you fail, when you can wonder if he loves you anymore, when you think about that, and you realize he faced the open mouth of hell and decided to love you and went into it for you. So do you think what you have done, this whatever it is, that sin that you have committed, is comparable to that? It is not. It is not. So you can know that he loves you in spite of it. He took care of it. It's gone. This is the love you've always wanted. No married love can quite do that. No love of a child can quite do that. No professional acclaim can do that. Nothing else can give you that. Now, what can happen? Maybe you say, well, Bob, I, man, our marriage is awesome. And that's great. That's, that's a reflection. That's like hors d'oeuvres of what's coming when we, become, when we get to heaven and we're, he's fully done with us. Look at Jesus. In this passage, here's Jesus. I, I always think about, you know, I, I always feel like at some point, and he's saying, God, if there's any other way, please let there be another way, but your will be done. And he looks at them and he goes, there's got to be another way, you know? And I feel like, I always feel like there's four, I, like I'm there with those disciples sleeping because I know I'd be like, yeah, Jesus, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you, Father. I just, I just pray for Jesus. And then, boom, I'm out just like they are. And he looked at me and he said, your will be done. I love Bob that much. He loves you that much. This is what we need. Everything else is a pale, cheap imitation. And when we seek this, we will see him work in our lives. There's no magic bullet. There's no secret thing. It's this whole idea of fixing your eyes on God, seeing who he is and what he's done for you, and then beginning to live it. Just saying, okay, God, today, in the morning, getting up, I say, okay, God, today, today, I want to be Jesus to somebody. I want to be Jesus to somebody. And then I always pray this because this is me. And God, help me to have the eyes to see the moment when it is the moment. Because if you're like me, I usually am doing something with somebody and I walk away going, darn, I had a chance to be like Jesus to them. But instead, I said that stupid remark, right? And so I pray, God, I want to be like Jesus to somebody today. And I pray, God, and when that point comes, that opportunity comes, or multiple opportunities come today, help me see them in time to actually be like you. And sometimes I don't. Sometimes I blow it. And uh, then I realize he's paid for that. He still loves me. He's not wagging his finger at me. He's just saying, okay, Bob, get this straight and let's move on together. Like Paul said, forgetting what lies behind, I press on, I press on. 
We're going to uh, close in prayer. And for those who will be serving, uh, that have been chosen to, to, to if you'll come up and, uh, and we'll take communion together. And then after communion, we'll roll right into a uh, meal of fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, all right? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your love for us, God. We thank you that in eternity past, even as we saw last week in Hebrews, the, 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 all three of you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, made this salvation possible for us. And so, God, we now give you our, your, our praise. We give you the glory. You are a great God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, as, go ahead and you guys can start. In, and uh, as they do that, I just want to mention, um, this is the Lord's table. All right, this is not our table. This is the Lord's table. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are welcome at his table. We just want you to know that. Um, if you feel like maybe I shouldn't or this is weird and I don't do this kind of stuff, that's cool too. We're fine with that. The way we do this, there'll be no... no uh, you won't be embarrassed or anything like that. When you are ready, uh, I will pray. And then when you are ready, you come up the outside walls and, and you take uh, the elements and then you go sit down and you eat and you drink at when you're ready. Because this is between you and God. So it, when you're ready, we're not going to say everyone eat now or everyone drink now. You do it when you're ready. So up the side walls and then back down the middle. And so Phil, if you guys will move to, to the corner, if you guys will go to the corner, then um, that will make it just flow better. But, but I want to emphasize this. This is for you and God. This is a time where we, you know, we remember what Jesus Christ did for us. And, uh, and in obedience, we come together and we worship him and thank him. All right? Let me pray, and then as you're ready, you can come forward. Father, thank you for this table, that it is a remembrance that he did that so long ago with his disciples and said, do this in remembrance of me. And Lord, in obedience to that, we are remembering, we are reminding ourselves, and we are thanking you for your body and your blood that you did this for us. We give you the praise. We give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.